It's a terrible bondage to live your life trying to please people because most of the time people have it wrong. Oftentimes people fail to see promise in the people around them. God always sees promise in people. It's an amazing thing, the potential, the promise. Consider these examples. In 1889, the editor of the San Francisco Examiner published one article by Rudyard Kipling, Rudyard Kipling, but declined to accept any more. He wrote, I am sorry, Mr. Kipling, he said, but you just don't know how to use the English language. An expert said of Vince Lombardi, he possesses minimal football knowledge, lacks motivation. Beethoven handled the violin awkwardly and preferred playing his own compositions instead of improving his technique. His teacher called him a hopeless composer. Walt Disney was fired by a newspaper editor for lack of ideas. Thomas Edison's teacher said he was too stupid to learn anything. Albert Einstein did not speak until he was four years old and didn't read until he was seven. His teachers described him as mentally slow, unsociable, and adrift forever in his foolish dreams. He was expelled and refused admittance to the Zurich Polytechnic School. Louis Pasteur was only a mediocre pupil in undergraduate studies and ranked 15 out of 22 in chemistry. Isaac Newton did very poorly in grade school. F.W. Woolsworth, employers at the dry goods store said he had not enough sense to wait upon customers. The list goes on and on about the people they got it wrong. It is absolutely amazing how many times people overlook the potential in those around them. That's the case with Saul and his son, Jonathan. We have an example where there is something adrift between father and son. Because in the story we're going to look at today, Jonathan is on his own with his armor bearer, and Saul knows nothing about it. It's most likely the reason Jonathan doesn't tell them because Saul wouldn't approve it. Approve it. He's a very much of a micromanager, and Jonathan knows that if he told him, he would shut him down, as he does with other people. Though this part of the book of 1 Samuel is primarily about Saul, today we're looking at his son, and secondly, about Saul. There's this amazing story about Jonathan stepping out in faith. Stepping out in faith can be exhilarating, but it can also be very frightening because the risk of failure are obvious and the chances of success are pretty minimal. But if God is leading you and God is helping you, there's no way you can fail. And that is this story today. Jonathan, the king's son, takes this giant leap of faith. He has an idea and he believes this idea came from God and that God is going to help him. He takes it slow. He thinks it through. He asks God for confirmation. God gives him the confirmation. He goes for it. And the results are absolutely astonishing. So I've entitled this Jonathan's Step of Faith. We're surprised that Saul is not the center of attention here. But he, he comes into the light by what he is not. Jonathan's faith is a stark contrast to Saul's lack of faith. So let's begin in 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'll read, I'll read the, the portion of Scripture. 
as I need to. Beginning at verse number one, here's Jonathan's plan. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. So to describe it as best I can without showing you a map, Saul has an army of 600. It's greatly diminished from 3,000 because they have been overwhelmed with fear. And they are on one side of this huge valley, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are on the other side. And in between them is this Philistine army that is so numerous that it's difficult to count. Twice as many chariots, twice as many horsemen, and so many infantry, they don't even know how to count. So Saul is here with 600, and Jonathan and his armor bearer are on this side, and it's not flat ground. It's mountainous, rocky crags. And in verse 1, here is this big clue. But he did not tell his father. There's definitely some problems between Saul and Jonathan. And the more we know about Saul, we realize the problems are with Saul. Problems that he's had for a long time, and they seem to get worse the older he gets. In verse 2, it tells us about Saul and his men. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. So while Jonathan is planning this audacious plan of attack, Saul is further away from him, further away from the enemy. And it's a contrast of complacency with Jonathan's creativity and audacity. In verse 3, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitab, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. So Jonathan has an armor bearer. We're going to find out an armor bearer with equal faith as Jonathan. And Saul has a priest who is a relative of Eli and Phinehas. Not a, very, not a very good ancestry. They were disobedient, didn't have a lot of faith. And this priest kind of carries on in the tradition of his father. Saul is relying on this priest to give him guidance. And it's referred to as an ephod he wears. And when he has this on, he seeks God's guidance. And, and Saul is relying on that. But they, Saul and this priest, Ahijah, are not men of faith. They go through the religious motions, like a lot of people do coming to church and going through religious activity, but they don't have real deep faith that guides their decisions in life. In verse 4 and 5, it describes the landscape or the challenge, the physical challenge that Jonathan has if he wants to go through with this harebrained idea. At least it would look like a suicide mission if God isn't in it. Verse 4, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Gibeah. So imagine this isle is a short, a small valley. And on this side is a cliff that goes up like this. And on this side is a cliff that goes up like this. The enemy is on the side of Michmash, right here. This is not a flat 
Creek, you can actually pull the pictures of this up. If you just type these two cliffs in, it'll bring it up and actually show you them today. There's rocky crags, which present a huge challenge for Jonathan to get to the enemy. He has to go, he can't climb these cliffs without a lot of difficulty. So he has to go toward the enemy in this valley, find the best place, and then climb up this huge cliff to get to the enemy. That's the challenge. And that's why the writer tells us a little bit about the physical topography before he tells us what happens so we can appreciate what Jonathan and his armor bearer do. So these cliffs actually provide some cover for him, but they also present this huge challenge of the physical strength and whether or not they can keep, keep out of sight of these Philistines till they get to the place where they want, want to be. So here's Jonathan's first description that tells us this is, this is faith. He feels like God is putting this in his heart. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, Jonathan definitely appears to believe this because he's either stupid enough or he has enough faith, courageous faith, to do this. I mean, we're talking about a vast army of multiplied thousands, and he's going to attack them, just him and the soldier who's with him. He seems to possess courage, and he has faith. He says, nothing, in verse 6, can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. Now, this actually is what faith is, to believe that God is big enough, powerful enough to do anything. This quality in Jonathan is not in his father Saul. In fact, he's already been disqualified from being king because he doesn't have this faith to believe. His disobedience, his lack of faith has disqualified him. There were many, many of these Israelite soldiers who defected because of fear. But here is one, Jonathan, who has not defected, who does not have this overwhelming fear, and who believes that God is able to help him. The same kind of attitude we're going to see in a couple chapters in David. Even the language is similar. When David is faced with Goliath, he says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. No wonder he and Jonathan became fast friends because they had the same kind of faith. And this is the theme of the entire Bible, this authentic, genuine faith. Abraham and Sarah had this faith when God told them that they would have a child, even though he was 100 years old and Sarah passed 90. There was no human possibility for them to have a baby, and yet they were being told, just believe. Now, they were being told to believe for 20 years, this promise. And at the height, he's 100, she's over 90. And God says to them through a messenger, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And the Bible tells us the reason they had a son is because Abraham believed. Abraham and Sarah believed. They had that faith. They struggled with it, but they had that faith. Jeremiah, one of my all-time figures of faith in the Old Testament, he, he preached this message almost his entire ministry 
And it was a negative message, and people actually didn't want to hear it. And they actually tried to shut him up many times. They locked him up, put him in a well, did everything they could to discourage him, but he wouldn't stop preaching. The message was this, repent and turn to God, or God is sending the Babylonian army to send you into captivity. Then at one point, he says, there's no, it's already done. They are coming. Jerusalem will burn. Well, they didn't like his message, and they prosperity gospel people of that day would say, Jeremiah doesn't know what he's talking about. The Babylonians are not coming. They will not capture us. But Jeremiah added a message. He says, even though you're going to go into captivity, even though the Babylonians are coming, God will preserve you if you repent, and he will bring you back to this place. And Jeremiah gave him these words from the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Being in Jeremiah's place and knowing what was coming, those are pretty amazing words. And Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, who reminds us with such eloquent words how powerful God is, in so many places in this beautiful book of Isaiah. One example is Isaiah chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Isaiah says, just look at the heaven. Just walk out and look when the stars come out. Look at the heavens, and you will see God's hand. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength? Not one of them is missing. No wonder... Isaiah came to this conclusion. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Even Jesus said that there is nothing impossible with God. He had been speaking about the impossibility of a rich man going to heaven. He says it's impossible because rich men and women trust in their wealth. Why do they need God? So the disciples said, well, if you're rich, then how could you go to heaven? And Jesus answered. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. True faith makes the impossibility possible. But there's something else about Jonathan's faith that makes it attractive. He's not one of these prosperity gospels that's commanding God, telling God what he has to do. Look at this small little word perhaps. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised men. Notice this word, perhaps. I love that word. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Why is that so beautiful? Because it's humility. He isn't commanding God. I've heard prayers where people, are, I command you, God. I wouldn't dare say something like that. Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. There's no presumption 
than Jonathan's faith. He knows God can do it. It's like the young men in the fiery furnace. They tell the king, God can deliver us from there. He can save us. But if he doesn't, we're human beings. We don't know everything. We're going to trust God. Jonathan is that way. Perhaps he will. I kind of feel like he will, but I'm willing to take a chance. So then this armor bearer has faith too. And he responds, do all that you have in your mind, his armor bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that encouraging? He doesn't drag his feet. I don't think that's going to work. Start telling him all the, all the ways his plan is wrong. This attitude is so powerful and so compelling. Go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. And I was encouraged to see this attitude this past week at the mega sports camp. So many of you helped in such an amazing way. So Jonathan wants a sign to confirm before he takes this step. Not presumption. It's he will not do it. But if God gives him a confirmation, then he's going forward with it, not knowing how it's going to turn out, just his trust. So he says, come on then, we will cross over toward them. They're going to go down this valley with all this rocky crags. They're going to go to some place with appropriate distance and they're going to make themselves noticeable to the enemy. It says, come on, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Remember, they knew only that it may be. They're not acting with presumption that they know exactly what's going to happen. They don't know how it's going to turn out. But faith, this is what faith is. Faith is trusting God. I'm going to take this step and God will do what I can't do. But he's asking for some confirmation. So in verse 11, we see what happens. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outposts. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. And remember the word Hebrews is a degrading, derogatory remark. Look, these scum are crawling out of the holes where they have been hiding. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to the armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So that was a confirmation. That's what he, that's what he was asking for. And that's what he got. And it's all right to ask for confirmation. In 1989, we had returned from Argentina, and I had been asked to go to Puerto Rico for an assignment. Even though I'd said yes, we were asking for the Lord to give us confirmation. We were only going to be in the States for eight months because we needed to be in Puerto Rico by the fall to start our kids in school. So eight months. But when we started looking for a house to rent, nobody had houses for eight months. The, the leases were all for a year on a house. Everybody, apartments, houses. So we asked the Lord, Lord, if you've called us to go to Puerto Rico, give us a house that somebody will rent to us for eight months. So I picked up the newspaper one morning and I was going through, as I was doing every morning, I went through it and there was, it said this house was renting for eight months, which by itself seemed quite extraordinary. So we drove to the house, which just driving into the neighborhood, 
we started telling ourselves there's no way maybe we shouldn't even go because this this house would definitely be out of our limit but eight months i mean who rents a house for eight months let's go talk to him so we did go talk to him it was a korean professor from the university he and his family were going to travel to seoul korea be there eight months exactly and then return back so the house was great far more than we could have ever wanted he told me how much he wanted which was about triple what i could pay i told him there's no way we can't pay that but here's what we could pay and i gave him a card and he said goodbye so we left that same day this guy calls me and he says you want the house i said yes i said how much he says for what you ask he says my wife tells me he didn't he didn't speak totally good english he says my wife tell me you want to keep house good go with these people you want to keep house bad go with other people who pay big money so he said wife right <laughs> so he says i'm not going to make a lot of money but you're going to keep my house right and we did and when he came back he was very happy with the house but we got this amazing house but the biggest thing was for eight months we signed a lease with him for eight months which is exactly when we needed to leave that was a confirmation that god does that you have prayed for those and god gives them faith allows us to do that it's amazing what happened with this faith the story tells us in verse 13 jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him the philistines fell before jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him in that first attack jonathan his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre i mean this is this is bigger than these drama movies this is real life two guys and they're just mowing the enemy down then panic struck the whole army those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding these raiding parties are the ones that have been sent out all over we even talked about those to terrorize they're not even there they're out but word gets out to them and panic is going through the whole army and the ground shook because people are running they're attacking each other they i mean who kills 20 people there must be there must be 10,000 of these israelites like that so the hand of god was working for jonathan and his armor bearer just just two it reminds me during the one of the wars with israel trying to defend itself against his enemy and the enemy is trying to take out some israelites and so they send them over and finally one of the survivors runs back runs back and he says it's a trap it's a trap and he says what is it he says there's two of them over there not just one this was kind of the idea with jonathan and his armor bearer god was so powerful in them that they initiated a battle god had already proved that he could defeat the philistines with an army or without an army he used a hellstorm once he could he could cause this panic so that the army actually wound up defeating itself so we returned to look at saul and his men saul still sitting under this pomegranate tree but he has sent out spies so that they can tell him what's going on 
verse 16, Saul's lookouts in Gibeah, at Gibeah and Benjamin, saw the army melting away in all directions. The, the metaphor there is really powerful. This army was just like water running in all directions. Saul perks up this news. Verse 17, then Saul said to the men who were with him, muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. So Saul actually begins to lose his grip. You would think that he would immediately want to take advantage of this moment since the army is melting away, but he calls for Ahijah the priest, bring the Ark of the Covenant, tell me what he's thinking. Maybe he's going to carry the Ark into battle. But in verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priest, the turmoil in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. It takes an enormous amount of evidence to convince Saul that now is the moment. So Saul and his forces attack, and they are joined with reinforcements. Verse 21, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So these are the ones who had been scared to death, hiding in caves, joined the enemy. They came back. They're the fair weather friends. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. They're not worth much, all right? They weren't willing to lose. They're only willing to win. In verse 23, just a few words in that sentence makes it so powerful. Look at this. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. Now use Jonathan and his armor bearer, but it was the Lord who saved Israel and caused this huge battle. And the battle extended or moved on beyond Beth Haven. And the Philistines fled into the hills with the Israelites in hot pursuit of them. So is there any application for this? I mean, we don't go out and fight on a half acre with 20 uh, Philistines today, but we do have enemies, every one of us. It takes courage to work on a marriage and resolve differences. It takes courage to raise a family and help your children work through their problems and understanding. It takes courage to find a sober life, stable life, get through your financial problems, unravel your messed up life, and, and get solid and serve God. It takes courage to, to maintain your integrity and protect your character. It's the same kind of faith and courage that Jonathan had to fight these battles, which are very real today in our world. Let this sink in. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I learned a long time ago to never worry about how many people were in the church. Never even say anything about it. Some pastors are so paranoid that if they don't have the maximum amount, they'll even say, we usually have a lot more. I don't know where they're all at. This verse says it all right here. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. There might be a lot of people in church. There might be a few people. But it's God who works in our heart. It's not the number of people. Sure, we would prefer to have the place packed out and standing room only. But 
this concept of understanding that God can do things that's not dependent on us. If we make, if we make things to be dependent upon our talent, our ingenuity, we're not going to have God working. It's the faith to believe that God can do it. It doesn't matter who's singing, who's leading, who's teaching. It's a group of people that have the kind of faith Jonathan had and this armor bearer. You need a Jonathan, but you also need somebody who says, I'm with you, heart and soul. Let's go for it. You can't get better than that. You can draw inspiration. But I want to tell you, the one man who fully obeyed God, there's never been a man who fully obeyed God. Jonathan had his faults and every human being who's ever lived, but there is one man who fully obeyed God, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is our ultimate example. He's the pioneer of our faith. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's Jonathan, that's Jeremiah, that's Isaiah, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. That's what we got to do. If you want this kind of faith, that's where you start. Get yourself disentangled so you can have this kind of faith. Doesn't mean you're going to get rid of every sin. You do this in your mind. God helps you get rid of the sin, but you've got to untangle your mind enough to make this commitment to Christ. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in this verse, you actually have the recipe to live a victorious life. And you have the recipe for the kind of faith that Jonathan had. I don't know what challenges that you're facing in life. They're all different for all of us, no matter where we're at. But we're all facing some kind of challenge. Could be work, could be family, could be physical in your body, could be financial, could be personal problems. Doesn't matter what the challenge is. This is the recipe right here. You throw off the weight that is weighting you down. So what is some of that weight that weights us down? What is some of the sin that entangles? Most of us know what it is already. We're pretty familiar with what trips us up. And it takes the ability, the discipline to say, you know what, I'm not going there. I mentioned a few weeks ago, if you were on a diet and you went every day to Krispy Kreme and you bought two dozen donuts and then you put them on your counter and then you got down in front of them and you prayed, say, Lord, help me not to be tempted to eat any donuts today. Do you think the Lord would answer that prayer? The Lord would probably say, I don't answer stupid prayers. (laughs) All right. The first thing he would want you to do is forget Krispy Kremes, probably like 500 calories in every one of those things. They are good. But you don't need a dozen of them every, every morning, especially if you're praying not to eat them. So we want to get away from the temptation. You want to avoid the temptation. Then if you're avoiding the temptation, you take your eyes off the temptation and you put your eyes on Christ. So I, I had a challenge and a half trying to teach my daughter how to ride a bicycle. For some reason, it came very difficult. And I was afraid she was going to break every bone. She got so many scratches, ran into so many trees. I was feeling very bad. This is, I was taking this personal. 
My, my wife, I'd bring, bring home and she'd say, oh man, what in the world's going on? And I could see my daughter was like, oh no, I don't want to do this again. So I went, we went to this park, which is not too far from our house, and I decided I was going to try something. Because she could always take off pretty good, but then she'd crash real quick, and she'd crash into something. And I wasn't able to catch her every time. It's those times I couldn't catch her that was messing us up. So I said, look, we're going to try something. I'm going to run in front, and I want you just to look at me. I don't want you to look at anybody else. Don't look at any trees. Don't look at any animals. You just put your eyes on me and don't take them off. Well, this park, it had a big white sidewalk and, and, and they, they went like in a circle all the way around, came back to the same point. And I said, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm not going to stop till we get back to the same point and then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to catch you. We can do this. So she says, okay. She's got her hands on there. That was before helmets. There was no helmet, man. We needed two helmets. So I took off running, and I'm trying to look a little bit back. We made it back to that original spot, and I turned around and caught her. You cannot believe how happy she was. I was happier. We had made it back. The goal was very simple. I should have done that in the beginning. She needed to be able to focus. She would start riding and something would grab her attention. She would look off for a second and then she'd lose her balance. As soon as I gave her the focus to look at me, then she could do it. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Just look at Jesus when you get up in the morning. Look at him in the mid-morning, at noon. Look at him. Look at him in the middle of that battle. Look at him in the evening when you're tired or when you're depressed. Look at Jesus and you'll make it.